Geoglitch and welcome back to Geoglitch Ministries or welcome to Geoglitch Ministries if it is your first time. I hope you find today's sermon enjoyable but more so I hope you find it edifying and even convicting. If you are a non-believer I hope you stick around and I hope that God uses this sermon in your life to bring you to the faith. God bless and enjoy. So we're back again in Hosea. We are in the sixth chapter of Hosea and we're doing the first six verses so Hosea 1 2 3 4 5 and 6 come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us he has struck us down and he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will rise us up that we may live before him let us know let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So today's text um, is sort of broken up into two sections. You have the first three verses and the second three verses. The first three verses seems to be a quotation from Hosea himself. Obviously, it's a divinely inspired quotation, but it's still coming um from God through Hosea. The second three verses, verses 4, 5 and 6, seem to be um, more so from God than from Hosea. They don't seem to be coming from God through Hosea, more so directly from God. Or at the very least, the first three verses seem to be something that Hosea said to people, declared to people, whereas these three seem to be something that he's just writing down here. For, for whatever reason, it seems to be something like that. For whatever reason, there are quotation marks around the first three verses and not the second three. So, let's go over them. Come, let us return to the Lord. So, this is a plea from Hosea. And again, that's why I think it's from Hosea. Let us return to the Lord. He's counting himself among these people. He's obviously an Israelite, someone from Jerusalem. So, he's saying, come, let us, me and you, return to the Lord. It doesn't make sense that God would say, come, let us go to God. It's like if I wanted someone else um, to come to me and I said, hey, we should go for us. It doesn't make any sense. So this is clearly Hosea speaking. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's calling to his people and asking them to repent and to return to him. Not in the way, not in the, the not, not return in the way that they've been considering, contemplating, um, returning to him. And that was uh, this sort of a superficial way of, well, we kind of, we've worshipped like a hundred gods this week. Um, one of them. He gave us some good stuff. He actually kept his promises. Maybe we'll go back to him and that one being the one true God. But they didn't really consider him that way because they just had so many. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly when I say a hundred in a week. But you know what I mean? It's that sort of general idea. They had so many gods that the one true God was just one of the many in their eyes. Even though there are no other gods. And so they... um. They superficially considered going back to him just because they wanted the benefits of being with him. We saw that in the last few chapters. They wanted the benefits that were associated with having the only God that was actually real on their side. 
Then Hosea goes on to say in this verse, for he has torn us. This is referring to the punishment, the righteous punishment of God. Because God does punish people. God is righteous and just. And that is something that people don't like to talk about, but we will talk about that more in a minute. God has torn us, he's punished us, that he may heal us. Now, he's not torn us. I don't believe that what the verse is saying is that God tore so that he can heal. I think what it's saying is, let us return to the Lord so that he can heal us. And then it's putting, for he has t um, torn us in the middle. Let us return to the Lord because we're not with him anymore and he's been punishing us so that he can heal us. I don't think it's saying, come, let's return to the Lord. He's been tearing us up so that he can put us back together. I don't think that's what it's saying. He has struck us down and will bind us up. Again, continuing on using some poetic, poetic um, language to speak about the punishment of God. We go into verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So, is this a reference to the crucifixion? You might be asking. On the third day, he will raise us up. I do believe this is a reference to the crucifixion. I believe this is twofold. Yes, I believe it is a reference to the crucifixion, you know, on the third day being risen, uh, raised up. When Christ raises up, it shows that he's conquered death and so on. But at the same time, I believe that this language, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will rise us up, is also just meant to simply say, Oh, it's, it's going to come quickly. He's, his forgiveness is, comes quickly, essentially. It's sort of like how if you're like seven minutes away, you might say you're only five minutes away. It's like an, an approximation type of a thing. It, it's sort of similar here, though not quite the same. It's basically just a, a poetic way of saying God is quick to forgive. He is quick to show mercy. Verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So again, Hosea is saying, let us go to God, showing this is Hosea speaking from his own position. Of course, divinely inspired, but it's still Hosea's own words at the same time. And so he's saying to his people, let me and you go back to God. Let us go back to God. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the springs that raise the earth. What's this in reference to? I believe it's in reference to watering, like watering plants. In the same way that the rains will come and water the seeds and water the plants, God will come to water his people, the seeds. And of course, this is all, you know, seed imagery. Um, is seen elsewhere in the Bible. If we go to Matthew 13, 38, we see it says, The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. God is coming back to water the, the world, as it were, and the seeds and the weeds will grow together. Um, but when Judgment Day comes, God will reap the harvest of the good seeds, and he will throw away the, the weeds. So here, that's what's being said. The waters will come to water the seeds and bring them up. And so when these people do truly repent, God is going to accept that. He's going to be okay with that. Um, I said be okay with that. That's a silly way of putting it. He's, he's going to accept it, like I say, because it will be genuine. When they genuinely come back, he will genuinely 
forgive them because forgiveness is one of the most important well i won't say it's one of the most no no attribute of god is more important than anything else but of course it's one of the most important things that we can show and it's one of those things that we have to be most grateful to god for when he shows to us and forgiveness the forgiveness of god the forgiveness of the christian is a very important thing colossians three thirteen. Bearing with one another and if one has complained against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is a very important Christian virtue. John MacArthur says forgiveness is required of a believer because forgiveness is the most godlike act a Christian can do. No act is more divine than forgiveness. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Because forgiveness is a massive part of who God is and we must do it but we run the risk of doing what these people were doing which is like you know I've already mentioned how they were thinking of coming back in a superficial way to God they were thinking you know when we worshipped him everything went great for us maybe we should try that again but that's not what God wants Billy Graham said, we cannot ask for forgiveness over and over again for our sins and then return to our sins expecting God to forgive us. We must turn from our practices of sin as best we know how and turn to Christ by faith as our Lord and Saviour. I think these Israelites could do with hearing something like that because they weren't doing that. They were considering turning back to God in a superficial way and saying, when we were with him, everything went so well for us, maybe we should go back. But they are not thinking, I am a sinner. I've sinned against God. I will repent and beg his forgiveness. They don't really care about their relationship with God for the sake of the relationship with God. They care about their relationship with God for the sake of the benefits that come with such a relationship and that's not the sort of relationship god is interested in that's an abusive relationship if anything that's not the sort of interest a relationship he wants to be in but when you're in a true relationship with god when you are truly on his side when you are truly one of his saints then he will forgive you then he goes through massive lengths to forgive you Ephesians 1 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace Jesus on the cross shed blood in order to offer forgiveness to his saints forgiveness is something God cares about he cares about it when we show it to others and he definitely cares about it when we don't show it to others and he cares about showing it to us and he makes the effort to show it to us and he forgives us of our sins those of us who are the saints he forgives of their sins and those who are not the saints he does not forgive now the forgiveness of God is not something that can just be thrown around the forgiveness of god is not some arbitrary thing the forgiveness of god is not something that he just does for people in general the forgiveness of god is akin to a passing on in a way he passes on the responsibility when we sin the guilt doesn't get forgiven in the traditional sense it gets passed on so that while we as individuals 
as people are forgiven, the debt itself is not. There will be millions of people who will go unpunished for their sins. But there will never be a single sin that ever goes unpunished. Because when we are forgiven, the sins which we are forgiven of get transferred to Christ so that while he is still perfect, he is not truly guilty, he is treated as if he were guilty, so that while we, being truly guilty, can be treated as if we are not guilty. And such is the promise of the cross. But people misunderstand the cross an awful lot, either on purpose or by mistake. A lot of people, for example, will claim that the cross was God setting aside his wrath for forgiveness. But that's not what happened. John Piper says, The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. The justice of God, the righteousness of God, was not compromised. Unlike what so many people say now. And here's the thing. People often wonder, if God, oh sorry, since God elects, I should say, since God elects, why doesn't he elect everybody? I don't know the answer. I intend to ask him one day. But it doesn't make me question God's justice or his kindness or his love. Because the truth is, he could elect absolutely nobody and none of those things will be challenged because he is not obliged to do those things. He is not obliged or to um, elect, sorry, he's not obliged to elect. He's not obliged to elect anybody. He wasn't obliged to elect me or you or anyone. There's not a single person in heaven who can say, I'm here because God had to elect me. There's not a single person in heaven who can claim that. Everyone in heaven will say, I'm here despite the fact God should have sent me to hell. No one in heaven can truly say, I'm here because I, I'm here because I deserved, I'm here because I earned, I worked, or whatever. I'm here because God chose me. I don't know why he doesn't choose everyone, but I do know this. It doesn't challenge his justice. Oh, but what about all the people who are predestined to hell? Well, what about them? They sinned. They're sinners. They deserve it. Because that's the wage of sin, is death. The second death in the lake of fire. They're not innocent parties being brutally tortured. They're evildoers being punished. And God's justice is therefore not questioned. But people say, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that God set aside... His justice in order to forgive people. In fact, I've seen I've I've seen people go a lot further. I think I once heard Stephen Fershick say God broke the law for love, which I'm not even going to get into right now. But that is that is an astounding statement from someone who claims to be a preacher of God's word. But people come up with all sorts of nonsense um, when it comes to the crucifixion, and one of the those things being God put aside his righteousness. Here's the thing: if God, in forgiving sinners, 
put aside his righteousness, he ceased to be God. If you take all the attributes of God, if you take God and all his attributes and you remove one, he's no longer who he is. He's no longer God. He's no longer perfect. And so this idea of a God who can just lay aside aspects of himself is the idea of a God who can just stop being who he is. And if God has no qualms laying aspects of himself aside, who's to say one day he doesn't lay aside his forgiveness, his mercy, his love and so on? People are fine saying God laid aside his wrath and his justice because his wrath and his justice are always things which work against us. Because we are unjust, we are evil. But no one ever wants to say God laid aside his love because, well, first of all, he never would. But he would also never lay aside his wrath or his justice. But at the same time, his love is something which tends to work in our favour. And so we don't like saying that he put that aside, because that's not as nice. But even if, even if God could put aside one of his attributes and it not be a challenge to him at all, even if God could put aside his righteousness and not become unrighteous, which is what would happen, by the way, if God put aside his righteousness, he would become unrighteous and therefore evil. But let's assume that's not what happened. Let's assume God put aside his righteousness or said that his righteousness didn't matter without it challenge him, challenging him actually being righteous. So he's still righteous, but he's put it aside somehow. We'll just say that's possible. Well, then he still becomes possibly the most evil creature in existence. Most evil being in existence. Because righteousness is no longer a problem. If righteousness, righteousness is what says good gets rewarded, bad gets punished. Righteousness is what says the wages of sin are death. Righteousness is what's keeping sinners in hell. So if God puts aside his, righteous, his righteousness, he has no reason to send anyone to hell. Because yes, they're sinners. Yes, they deserve it. But the thing that says that people get what they deserve is righteousness, is justice. But if God put those, puts those things aside, people don't need to get what they deserve anymore. And so now... God has an excuse to put literally everyone in heaven. Universalism could be true. But he doesn't. He's no reason. He has no reason because his righteousness and his justice for some reason just aren't an issue in this worldview. He now has no reason to send anyone anywhere other than heaven. And yet he still sends people to hell. which would be an act of cruelty, if not for God's righteousness and judgment, being behind the decision, which obviously it's not in this worldview. It is in real life, but it's not in this worldview. And so what this worldview does is it creates a sort of, I want to say two-way street, if you will. You go down one way, God is unrighteous. You go down the other way, God is unrighteous. Either way, God is unrighteous. So it's just creating a worldview where God is just plainly unrighteous. God did not set aside one of his own characteristics to do something, anything. God did not set aside his righteousness to do a purely righteous act. Our sins are paid for by Christ on the cross. 
R.C. Sproul said, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for justice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. It's not unrighteous for us to go to heaven. Therefore, God will not have to set aside his righteousness or his wrath. But some people claim that that's what he did, which is just ridiculous. We move on now to verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away therefore i have hewn them by the prophets i have slain them by the swords of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light for i desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of god rather than burnt offerings so go back to verse four what should i do with you ephraim what should i do with you judah your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes away early so god starts off deliberating rhetorically obviously what am i going to do with you and he says, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Sure, they might have love for him at a time when they realize, hey, when we worship that guy, things were going great for us. Maybe we should go back. But it doesn't last long. It doesn't take long for them to go whoring, for them to go running off to other gods. For them to try their luck. It's there, at least superficially, for a time. It seems to be there. But it quickly reveals itself to not actually be there at all. Five. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. I think what God is saying here is that he speaks against them. He's hewn them or cut them. There's another way of saying that. By the prophets. The prophets have come and admonished them, given out to them, essentially told them off. Giving harsh words against them. Called them sinners. Called them to repentance. Cut through their pride and their arrogance. And told them the truth. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Again, the prophets, I think he's indicating here, came from him. Those prophets who you may not have listened to. Those prophets who you might have thought were talking nonsense. They came from me. The words they were saying, I told them to say that. If you ignored them, you ignored me. And it was my words that called you out in your pride and your arrogance and told you to repent. And judgment goes forth as the light. The light penetrates through darkness. Um, very easily, darkness doesn't put up a fight. It's, there's no friction there. You know, if you move through anything, even air itself, there's going to be friction. Um... But now with light going through darkness, light goes through darkness like nothing. And so God, obviously being represented by the light, as light is often used to represent something good. His judgment, being a good thing, goes through the darkness of the sin of these people. It goes through the darkness of the sin of the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. And this is a showing that, like I say, his judgment is good. It's not, it is something to be feared, but it's, it's not a bad thing. It's not evil. It's not horrible in 
the moral sense of the word. It's horrible to be on the receiving end of it. But if you're on the receiving end of it, you must have done something horrible to receive it. It is a good thing not to receive, but in the moral sense in general, it is a morally righteous and good and proper thing. And his judgment goes forth by, like the light with no resistance. Nothing can stop it. It'll reach what it can reach. It can reach pretty much anything. Verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So this is an interesting one. Steadfast love, or as the Septuagint uh, translated, mercy. You may be familiar with that. If you go to Matthew 9.13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And of course, he's quoting this. So it seems that another way of rendering this could possibly be mercy. So steadfast love or mercy. I think steadfast love happens to work better here. But I think they can both work really. God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. What's this in reference to? Well, what would happen at the time, similarly to the Billy Graham quote I read before about, you know, sinning and asking for forgiveness over and over again and not actually doing about anything about your sin. What would happen at the time is people would go around, they'd sin, they wouldn't really care about their sin. They'd just do it. Then they'd realize, oh, I've offended God, not in a remorseful way, more in a, oh, this could really come back to be some sort of an inconvenience type of a way. They weren't ever worried about how they'd gone against God any more than they were worried about how it could come against them. And so what they do is they go and they give sacrifices at the altar. They go and they sacrifice animals, sin sacrifices and so on. It wouldn't mean anything. It would just be going through the religious motions. It would just be getting it done to get it done. Doing this to hopefully appease God and not have to go through, you know, Punishment, not have to go through judgment. Because they didn't understand the way God's justice worked. They thought it was just, oh, something bad happened, I'll give him a sacrifice, he'll be fine. They didn't understand that the whole point of the sacrifice was that you were giving something up out of repentance. You were sorry, and to show your sorrow, you made the gesture, you, you sacrificed something. What they thought it was, was simply just... This guy almost like sacrificing. Okay, we'll give him a goat every time we sin, and that that was that that was their view of it. That was their view of it. They had such a low view of it and such a low view of God that God finally said he had enough. I don't want this. The system that God Himself put in place, the sacrificial system that He Himself put in place, He said, I don't want this because it's all meaningless on your side. The system that God put in place to be able to forgive His own people of their sins. Well, those people have become so sinful that they corrupted the means of their own forgiveness to the point where God was saying, I just, I can't accept this anymore. It's not good enough. Not that it was ever truly good enough in the you know great sense of the word. That's why we needed Christ. But it was good enough in the momentary sense. It was good enough in that God was saying, Ah, uh, this will do for now. I will accept this for now. It wasn't a perfect system, but it would do for the time. But now that's changed. Now they've become so sinful and so corrupt. They've corrupted this whole thing. That God's looking at their their own means of forgiveness, and saying, "I can't do this anymore. You've ruined it for yourselves." 
they were so sinful that they destroyed their own chances of forgiveness of those sins. God does not desire sacrifice. He desires love on his people's behalf. He wants them to love him. And another way of rendering that, again, mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Again, I think it still works with sort of basically the same understanding. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He wants to be able to have mercy on his people. He doesn't want any great amount of sacrifices. He wants to be able to show them forgiveness. He wants them to be able to, you know, do the right thing. And so that when they do mess up, they can be repentant and he can forgive them. He doesn't want this endless cycle of sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Again, the same thing. He wants his people to know him. He doesn't want his people to know how to theoretically stop him from punishing them whenever they do something wrong. He wants his people to know him, to have a relationship with him. He doesn't want to be the guy that we have to go to the temple and give our best go to every time we want to sleep around or whatever it is. He's the one true God and he wants his own people to know that. But they've become so sinful, so corrupted, that they're forgetting that. They don't even know their own God. They remember how they can, in their sinful eyes, get him to leave them alone whenever they do something wrong. But they don't know who he is. And I think so many people are like that today. So many people think of God not as the God that he is, but as the fellow that we've got to keep happy if we want good things to happen to us. I have to ask, is that you? How do you think of God? Do you think of him as the fella who you've got to say sorry to every time you mess up, otherwise he's going to punish you? Do you think of him as the fella who's putting the looming threat of hell over your head? Do you think of him as the guy who I better stay on his good side just in case? Or do you think of him as he is, as the one true God who died for the sins of his people to forgive them? Do you think of God the Punisher or God the Forgiver? God the Redeemer? Truth is, we should remember both. We should remember that God does punish and God does redeem. If we focus on one and forget the other, we only have half the picture. And then that says we might as well not have the picture at all. A bad view of God is just as good as no view of God. You must have the right view of God. And so I implore you, make sure you have the right view of God. I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like some other ways of consuming Witch Ministries, then go to the links in my About section on my YouTube channel, and you will find my website, my TikTok, my Instagram, and my Spotify, where you can find either snippets of these sermons or the full sermons. If you would like to finance these sermons or help me monetarily then you can also find my patreon you don't have to do this but it would be greatly appreciated thanks for watching god bless and son of his grandma